welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Before we jump into today's conversation, I would love to share with you Thrive by Design. Thrive by Design is my wellbeing program for workplaces. Since starting the podcast, I have had a number of organizations reach out and say, Meg, I know you work with schools, but what you're sharing is really resonating with me. Do you think you could come and work with my organization? And it has been such a joy to work with different organizations, organizations that I have no idea about how it works day to day. I'm not in finance. I'm not in real estate. I'm not in the wine industry. However, I understand humans. And so creating a space for humans to connect, to share, laugh and learn is invaluable. If you are in a school, an organization or community group and would like to provide your people with access to wellbeing education that makes sense, the skills, the strategy and the support, please reach out. Thrive by Design, my workplace wellbeing program is designed for big hearted humans that want real lasting change. On to today's guest. In this episode, I chat with Corey Jackson. Corey is a performance and stress management coach that supports individuals and organizations to cultivate more emotional balance in their lives. Corey is currently studying his PhD on the influence of emotions and mindfulness on underlying causes of anxiety and depression. In this conversation, we discuss what are emotions, how emotions impact the way we think, feel and act, what happens when our attention is captured by our emotions, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Corey Jackson. Corey, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. I am so excited to have this conversation, and I know we're going to cover a lot of territory in a short period of time. But before we get into that, how did you get interested in understanding emotions and the impact that they have on the way that we think, feel and act? So it sort of evolved. In uh, my early 20s, I moved from Brisbane to Toronto to Canada to do a music performance degree, a jazz performance degree. And I had been to Canada before on visits and have some connection there, but I was really surprised how different it was. You know, I kind of expected it would be like, like Australia with thick sweaters, you know, thick jacket. Um, and I was really surprised. It, took, it was really interesting for me. So I was there for maybe seven or eight years or something. Uh, and in, in that time, I'd got really interested in meditation and sort of mostly how it applied to music. I, I was really interested in this and interested enough that actually I, moved, I went to India. And so then I got another jolt of what it's like to be in a different culture. And while I was there, I, I ended up actually living with the Tibetan exiled community. So I, I was in India for about six years. And so I lived with the Tibetans. I learned their language and studied philosophy and stuff with them. And you couldn't get more different cultures than India and Tibet. And then there's me as well uh, and other Westerners. I wasn't alone. It became really interesting for me, especially as I learned the Tibetan language more and more, this whole other way of thinking about things that obviously worked for them. For example, there, there isn't a word for emotions as we know it in Tibetan. You know, they don't talk about it the same way we do. And so that sort of stuff got me really interested. I was studying Buddhist philosophy and, and meditation practices and translating them as I got better and so on. When I came back to, and it, all, it really helped, I should say. Like I felt really good. I was really surprised how these kind of ideas impacted my everyday life, you know, improved just my overall mood and, and my outlook and so on. And when I came back to Australia, I came across a, a project called Cultivating Emotional Balance. And what that is, is taking some of these meditation practices and mapping them onto a scientific understanding uh, of emotions specifically. And, I, and when I, I did the training, it was this sort of intensive training to, to become like a teacher training. In amongst all that, when I started teaching it, I really understood that was the reason that if you take those, that type of meditation, for, and it's not just meditation, it's theory and understanding as well. And you apply it to emotions as psychology knows them, uh, that's where the power was. And so I, I got really interested in that. But interested enough, I went back to uni and did a psychology degree and Sanskrit as well while I was there. Because you can say, oh, meditation helps you with mood or helps you feel better or be more present or these sorts of nefarious things. It's like, here's why it worked. And there are different meditation practices and here's how they work. And if you understand emotions, 
then it, it just maps up so well. So that, that's sort of how I got, I realized that's how you can sort of come to help people and who are open to it is through this combination of some sort of meditation training and emotion literacy, perhaps is the word, you know, that evolved into the PhD I'm in the middle of now as well. It is so fascinating to think about your story and to go to different cultures and start to notice that the way that you had talked about things as simple as emotions, you say the word emotions, and then to get to another culture and like, oh, you don't have a word for this? Oh, how do you think about it? Tell me more. They're very systems focused, I guess. The, the Buddhist philosophy has really crept through into their culture. And it's more about whether you're under the influence of, I guess, your mental state is kind of influenced by certain things. So it might be influenced by some kind of aggression or anger or some sort of kind of attachment is the term, you know, some pleasurable sort of experience, or it could be also, I don't know, jealousy and so on. And there is a way of thinking that as long as it's sort of bringing about good positive outcomes for you and your community, then, then it's a sort of a helpful thing. And if it's bringing about destructive outcomes for you and your community, that's something that needs to be worked on. But they don't break them down into this specific kind of, you know, this is anger and this is contempt and this is disgust and this is, it doesn't get broken down like that. And the interesting part of it for me is that if you sort of look more closely, it always collapses down into this idea of what's happening with your attention. If we're distracted, if our attention sort of pulled away without us wanting it to be, captured is the term I usually use, if attention's pulled away, it tends to wander off into negative directions. And psychology knows this. We have a negativity bias. We tend to focus on things that are threatening rather than helpful and so on. It's way more the way they look at it is if you sort of have your attention under your control and you kind of understand what is going to be good for you and your community, then you're going to be able to act in such a way that, that brings that about. In fact, you could think about it like this. That's kind of a slightly more long-term goal. Oh, what's good for my community? What's, what's good for me? Versus the emotional reaction, which is usually what gets me through this thing that's happening right now. And they're often in a bit of conflict. And so if you're constantly pulled away into the what gets me through this right now, you often lose that longer-term goal. So it all collapses down into is this idea of attention training and having your, the ability to know when your attention's pulled away, when you're distracted, and also techniques to bring it back and put it somewhere helpful. Because if we leave it alone, our attention tends to wander off into bad neighborhoods. You know, it seems it tends to go places that aren't very helpful. And once it's there, then it will tend to drive the things we say and do, which can, you know, cause problems in our relationships, in our career and all sorts of things. From the Buddhist perspective, the long-term goal is this whole sort of enlightenment thing going on. But if you if you pull that if you put that aside for a little while, and just think about uh, you know something simple like an example I often joke about is if I have if I have a problematic neighbor, and every time I see this neighbor, I kind of say something a bit sarcastic or a bit snarky, you know, because they do this, that, and the other, and yeah, you know, I have this habit of saying of speaking to them in this way, and then all of a sudden I want to borrow borrow their lawnmower. My long-term goal, which is the lawnmower can easily be torpedoed by the short-term sort of emotional responses. And so what I'll need to do is to like keep the long-term goal in mind as I meet, meet them, even while I have all these great, you know, sarcastic, snarky things I might want to say, but actually you know, I've got this longer-term goal. And so that's sort of a goofy example, but it's always like this. You know, the, I, I want to be fit and healthy, but I wander past a cafe with my favourite cake. I want my class, I want my students to do well. I want to understand what I'm saying, but I'm going to be pulled in by this one student who set me off emotionally. Like it, it, it's happening to us all the time. And that ability to sort of rest in order to, to notice that my short-term kind of responses here aren't in line with my long-term goals is this kind of key element that I found really helpful in the way that some other cultures think about things uh, and then try to apply it, like I say, the way that we operate here in the West with a more maybe scientific way of thinking about emotions. So interesting to think about how we can be captured by our emotions and they can take us down all kinds of paths and then how that can be quite compromising in a sense that it's not going to lead us to where we want to go. When we're feeling captured, we're taking ourselves away from the person we hope to become and where we want to go. So from all of your experience, what does emotions mean to you now? If you think what an emotion 
is and does. It's a, it's a subjective experience, right? It's an experience that's unique to me. It will be brought on by something identifiable. Like I'll be able to say, oh, I was set off by, I don't know, if, let's say I'm afraid of dogs and I see a dog. Or, you know, I remember a dog or I see a plant down the street that I think is a dog. It doesn't even need a dog, right? But you know, I can identify this kind of trigger. We call it an elicitor in psychology, but trigger is maybe an easier word that will set me off. Uh, like, and it's, it's the other way too. If, I, if I'm walking down the street and I think I see a good friend of mine I haven't seen for a while, then there's all these enjoyable emotions that arise. It works you know, both ways. And so they're really helpful in as much as and it's, so it's a subjective experience. I can identify what set it off and then it will mobilize my cognitive and physical, like it mobilizes resources to deal with that particular situation. And so that's, that's what an emotion is. It's, in a short, it's a short-term fix to a problem that's right here in front of me. And there are plenty of times where that fix is okay. If a child runs out in front of your car, there's mostly a fear response that will drive all these automatic responses that will help you stop the car in time and so on. Uh, so there are these times where you get sort of hijacked, sometimes is the term, or taken over by these emotions, and they work fine. But really what an emotion is, is this, is this short-term fix to a problem that is right, right here in front of me. And evolution has kind of made it such that it's possible to react, to say and do quite a lot of complicated things without knowing we're doing it. But there's this automaticity, we say, there's an automatic response to the emotional trigger that really makes sense for most of human evolution. But in recent times, say, you know, since we've come out of hunter-gatherers, in fact, we're really well adapted as hunter-gatherers. But when you bring us out into the 21st century, then it can cause some problems. So it's this idea for me that emotions are, they're really your friend, they're really adaptive, but they can run us off the rails if we don't sort of understand what it is they're supposed to be doing for us, I guess. I think you raise a really interesting point there, Corey, is that it is subjective. There's a trigger and then we'll have an experience. So you use the example of a dog. Myself, as soon as I'm walking down the road and I see a dog approaching, particularly if I have my dog, I start to get nervous. All of a sudden I'm thinking about how can I cross the road, wonder what that dog's going to do. My heart rate's up. I'm racing, like I can really, really feel it. And then if I happen to be walking with my best friend, she's thinking, yes, I love dogs. I wonder if they'll let me pet that dog. She's having the best time of her life. And it's so interesting to notice for one person's experience, it can be completely different to somebody else. I love to go ocean swimming on a Saturday morning. And generally when I talk about ocean swimming with other people, there's two responses. One is I would love to do that. I've always wanted to do that. And there is no way you're getting me there. So it's interesting to note that because we feel subjectively about something, that doesn't equate to the other person feeling the same way about it. That's right. When you sort of dig a little deeper, the way I often talk about it is that you have the phenomena, if you like, you have things that are presented to your senses, and then you have your interpretation of that. And so this is very uncontroversial in psychology, neuroscience, it doesn't matter. And that we live in the interpretation. But the interpretation to, appears to us as this hard reality. So we start to think that something that I'm afraid of is something that's inherently frightening, for example. Uh, or we think that, you know, in terms of the dog example you gave, or, you know, go through a modern art gallery with a friend, you know, and see what you like and they don't like. Yeah, there's, and it's because the, the sort of likability of the object doesn't exist in the object, it exists in my interpretation of it. And so that gets really important in terms of emotions, because if, in fact, it's really liberating in terms of emotions, because if there are some emotions that are, you know, reactions that are causing you problems, if you think you're overreacting to something, then chances are you're overestimating the trigger. So in terms of dogs, chances are if it's a fear response, I'm probably overestimating the threat. You know, if it's an anger response, I'm probably overestimating the anger is a difficult one, but anger, the trigger theme of anger is usually an obstacle. It's usually something we kind of want to remove, you know, whereas sad, sadness, for example, the theme is loss. So you might, I might overestimate the sort of sense of loss of my, you know, my favorite pen or something like this, uh, or, uh, you know, packet of chips I dropped down the drain. I don't know. There's yeah, anything like that. 
So if you can, but if there are some regular ones that you can identify with a bit of training and work, you can reinterpret in such a way that you can dial down those problematic reactions. Yeah, so the, the idea of it being subjective is really an important part of the whole thing. And then I guess the skilled part of it is learning to rethink, is this helpful? Is this harmful? Could I potentially have a new interpretation of this experience and working through that? You know, the example of the dog, I know at the moment, and for the last few years, honestly, I've been trying really hard to notice when I see another dog, what do I do? How am I responding? Because I make the situation worse because I get anxious and then our dog Kev gets anxious and then it's just not good. And so I've had to practice keeping my calm. That means Kev's not feeling like he has to go into fight mode and protect me and working through it. But it really does take practice. It does. And a few things that are against us, really. In fact, let me, if I can sort of summarize a little bit where we're up to. First, it comes down to attention. We have two basic attention systems. You know, neurologically, we have an endogenous and an exogenous system. So we've got one that's kind of under our control and one that's captured. And the simple act of going from that endogenous controlled attention to have it pulled away from us uh, by something that's happening nearby or whatever, just that switching of attention actually releases cortisol and it you know, gives us this heightened um, sort of arousal is the term. And you can imagine it makes sense if you're a hunter gatherer and there's a rustle in the grass, your attention's pulled away, right? And so you get this level of arousal while you figure out is it a threat or not? And if it's a saber-toothed tiger, you're ready to go. If you want to know how emotion's supposed to work, it's a great example. Because if it's a saber-toothed tiger, it's going to be a big fear response. Blood's going to be diverted to my legs so I can run. We know this really happens. My facial expression and tone of voice is going to signal to everyone around me that there's a threat. And I'll be mobile, like all these resources, cognitive and physical, have been mobilized to get away. Whereas if it's just, you know, a mouse or the wind in the grass, within a minute or two, I'll be back to baseline and back to my hunter-gatherer thing, you know, doing whatever it is that I'm, that I'm doing. So that's how it's evolved. And so when your attention's pulled away like this, everything's on autopilot, right? The interpretation's on autopilot, the behavior's on autopilot, the whole thing. It's very unconscious. It seems to me it's, it's adaptive. This is how we've evolved. But it's not always, you don't always want to be in this situation. There are times where you might be afraid. We need to go and do it anyway. You know, there might be times when you're sad, which you know, really brings us down and kind of slows our lives down. We might be sad or we need to get up and do something. And so bringing your attention back under your control is the key component of, the, of how you act and speak and what you say and do under the influence of these emotions. And that's where it starts to get uh, interesting. If I notice my attention is captured and I'm becoming emotional, and I can pull my attention back, I'll probably still feel it. The subjective experience will still be there. But now that I'm, now my attention's back under my control, I have a lot more freedom in what I might say or do. This sort of comes down to your short versus long-term goals. It's like there's a short-term thing here, which is to get to deal with this dog issue. And then I think, actually, you know what? I've got this longer-term goal where, whatever it might be in this case, um, you know, to make friends with my neighbours, to have to, to, for my dog to have a, you know, healthier walk, whatever it might be in this situation. But you can see that, that you can use this in a really highly charged, high stakes situation as well. How controlled my attention is sort of dictates how in control I am of what I say and do while the emotions are rising. So that's sort of the step one. If you want to go further in this, then yeah, then you can actually start to uh, train and play around with your actual perception, your actual, uh, your, how you're interpreting what's happening. And then you, you've got, that, that's a lot of power to have your emotional states working for you rather than against. I love that idea of being able to notice, to notice I'm feeling a bit nervous, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling frustrated, I'm feeling angry, and this is a choice I'm going to make compared to I'm just angry, I don't even know what's happening, I'm just out of control, I want to hit somebody or throw some something, and I think there's a real distinction there. We're not saying we need to get rid of emotions. We're saying they're always going to be there because we're humans and we're emotional creatures. However, if we can start to notice them and where they move us towards, 
we can start to have a little bit more control. So I'm, from what I'm hearing, I'm understanding that when we're captured in our emotion, we're stuck, we're in this automatic cycle. So my natural cycle, when I see a dog, is uh, fear and it's completely out of touch with the actual fear, but my fear in my body is really real compared to me noticing, oh, I'm seeing a dog. This is how I feel in my body. I get anxious, so I get fearful and I'm going to take some deep breaths and keep moving forward anyway. Yeah, that's right. If you sort of understand that actually, perhaps in this case, you know, you know, you could look for the dog's body language and see that actually it's just dying to play. Focusing on a dog and interpreting as a threat, we reinterpret as a dog that wants to play that starts to rearrange how we respond and how we think about it. So that's sort of, and of course, if it is aggressive, then you're all set up and ready to do whatever you need to do. Yeah, that's a really important point. You can kind of feel that emotional experience, but then not be sort of sucked into it. Paul Ekman, who is you know, a really, really famous uh, emotions researcher, who a lot of my work is based on, uh, talks about being in the grip of an emotion and that when you're in the grip, yeah, you get railroaded into these ways of behavior. And the thing to, it's important to know is that when your attention's captured and you're pulled into this automatic response, you have very little opportunity to innovate. You'll almost certainly do something you've done before or some variation of. And it's funny, even if you've decided, you can sort of think, oh, okay, next time I meet a dog, I'm going to do this. You know, next time this neighbor, student, colleague, family member, whoever says this, I'm going to respond like this. And that's great to have the plan. It's helpful. But chances are, if in that time you can't pull your attention back and relax, you're just going to go ahead and say what you've said in the past. So which is where this sort of idea of attention training becomes so important because you can do it really fast and you can sort of head those responses off at the past and, and bring up these other ones that are going to be more constructive, that are going to help you say, I forget you said earlier, sort of talking about the outcome of the emotional event as being, I forget what you said, but constructive and destructive is how we think about it. And you can think, well, what's, what's going to be a constructive thing to say? Is we're going to lead to a constructive outcome. And even though I, in the moment I want to say the thing that's going to lead to a destructive outcome, I can kind of cut that off and shift back and away we go, you know, so it's constructive. And so that's the kind of, they say in the beginning, that's how you're operating. You're thinking, oh, I cut that off at the past and I'm going to do this. And then you can actually work on reinterpreting what's happening in you know, reappraisal is the term in psychology. Um, but again, it comes back to this, it, back to this idea of what's happening with your attention. That's the key element. Because it's hard to know if you're not noticing, if your awareness is not there. For a long time, I know when I was working, I was just in autopilot. I was in reaction. The whole day I was fighting fires. There was no moment to catch my breath. And I often share with the teachers and parents that I work with, imagine trying to read a book without any punctuation. Horrible. And that's how we go through our days compared to what it would it be like to put in just a few full stops, some capital letters. We're not expecting new chapters. Within your reality, how can we punctuate our day so we can start to check in with ourselves and notice our emotions are shaping the way that we're behaving. And I'd love to hear from you, Corey, how does that then impact our relationships? When you think about what emotions do, is one of, one of their functions is to signal uh, to ourselves, which we should probably talk about in a moment, but to signal to ourselves, but also to others, that something important is happening. So if somebody is, and we're very intuitive, so it's interesting, there's, there is this, Paul Ekman actually pioneered this research to show that there are actually seven, six arguably, but seven different emotions and those facial expressions are understood universally. So that the facial expression, I've gone and said that, now we have to try to remember them. There's the, the facial expressions say of anger and sadness and uh, contempt and fear, uh, surprise. Um, I'm not sure what I've missed out. Sad, do I say sadness, enjoyable emotions? I'm not sure, but there are, there are certain things that are actually uh, universal. So the, and we're signaling that all the time, right? And it's, some of it's intuitive. You can train to get really good at it, like to, um, to, to read facial expressions really well. 
although it comes with a warning that you can't turn it off. So you need to decide whether you want to do it or not. So, so there's that going on. So our emotional reactions are actually really having a big impact on the person in, in, or people in front of us. And it's influencing their emotional reactions, which are now coming back to me. There's a really importance in this that just if emotions go unchecked, it's going to, it, it signals every, it's like everything is just being signaled out to the other people, which if, if your relationships can survive that, that's all right, but often they probably can't. The more, I guess, aware we are of our emotional state, the more chance we have to be able to think about, or at least say and do things that, again, are going to bring this more positive outcome. And so that, of course, is going to help help the relationships. You got to you got to understand if if somebody does a lot of emotional literacy training and this sort of attention training I'm talking about, what happens is I often joke with clients of mine and say, look, you're going to go and you're going to have this hard conversation and you're going to say something, and then you're going to have to kind of stand aside while you get what's coming back and ignore it and give them time to come around because you've got this sort of training and you know how it works. So yeah, it's it's really a, a really important part of any relationship is to understand the cues that we're getting from the per people, personal people in front of us. But also, and here's the part we've already sort of touched on, emotions are also signaling to us. And emotion works as a signpost. It's a signpost and it tells us, hey, something important is happening here. And then it's up to us to perhaps look, in, look into that. If you're know, becoming emotional in the course of a conversation with people or a person, then really the sooner I notice that, the quicker I can analyze what's happening. And you know, this is not, this is fractions of a second. We're really good at it if we train. I can analyze and decide if what I'm saying is helping or not helping, come up with ideas that might sort of be, how to say, constructive. Whereas if that emotion arises and I don't treat it as a signpost, I just allow it to take over and capture me. I'm just going to say or do things I've said in the past. And if everything you've said and done in the past has improved your relationships, there's no need to do anything. But if, of course, there are times where it's caused problems, then, yeah, we need to think about uh, new ways to approach this. Emotional literacy and this attention training can be key elements to really improve relationships for people, even if the other people aren't doing it themselves. Yes, because within every relationship, we're in a dance and we're constantly doing that to and fro and trying to work out is it helpful or is it just keeping us stuck in the same patterns? And it's interesting to note that potentially you could have really good emotional literacy and really understand emotions, how it feels in your body. But if you're not noticing, if you don't have that awareness, you're not probably going to be moving forward and making productive choices that's going to take you to a more aligned place. And it's interesting to think about it in my journey when I started to learn about these ideas, I started to notice myself and some of the behaviours that I had. And I often laugh about a fight that I had with my now husband years and years ago. I had moved uh, to the farm and I'd never lived on the farm. And he went out to check the pumps. Okay, checking the pumps, I'm sure that would be, I don't know, an hour, two hours max. And he didn't come back for a few hours. And I was thinking, what's going on here? It's a weekend. I'm here. You've gone out. I'm wondering what's happening. Like, how long is this pump thing? And when he eventually got back, I had already been really worked up about this whole idea in my head that you don't care about me. You're off doing this. And I've made this big, big story. And then later on, we end up having an argument over the dishwasher and it's one of those arguments where I had a moment where I just thought I could just blow this up. I could just, it's like you have a grenade in your hand and you can just throw it all like that back pocket. You've got that card. And I just said, look, I've changed all my life and you, you can't even be here. Like what, what is going on? And I was so frustrated and he was a bit not sure what was happening because the <laughs> response was just so big. It's just a dishwasher. And then I go outside and it's just a wheat paddock. All I can do is walk around this wheat like, oh, what is going on? And it's really interesting to notice now when I'm in situations where things have built up and I really want to just let someone have it, I can catch myself more often than not and just say, I'm at my edge. I need to go have a bath or I need to have a walk and then I'll be ready to talk. Yeah, those, those are really helpful times. And in fact, if you have 
so my you know my my wife is sort of up on a lot of this stuff too of course so she's a teacher so that can be really helpful because i if i share this story about our our we before we moved down here we were up in the hinterland in a retreat center actually like a and it was a little cabin right in the queensland bush and it had all sorts of creepy crawlies you know all over the place so one day and this is actually a great example of how emotions work too the two of us are standing at a at a, at a bench and like I don't know, I've made coffee and she's making toast or something like this. You know, we're just getting breakfast organized. So out of the corner of my eye, I see this huntsman crawling across the floor straight towards her. Now, it's a huntsman's probably, it was probably smaller than my hand, which is a small one, you know, for this part of the world. But what happens with this is, you, so my attention's captured. That, you know, now I'm, I'm sort of heightened arousal. I overestimate the threat because this is what we tend to do. You know, there's no loss usually in overestimating a threat. Yeah, so this is another um, negativity bias. So I overestimate the threat of, of a like a harmless huntsman sort of fairly gone fairly fast across the floor right towards Kirsty towards my wife. So I did what any loving husband would do. I pushed her out of the way. And and of course now and she's she turns to me, what are you doing? Because she hasn't seen the spider, of course. So she's upset. And then um, of course now I'm annoyed because I've just saved her from this like you know person killing spider that was about to attack all of us. So there's there's, there's a really interest that's how this this play of not just how the relationship works but how the emotions tend to help us they sort of force us into these overestimations which traditionally have been helpful like in terms of an evolutionary context has been helpful but here they aren't but the for us of course when, when i understood pretty quickly what had happened partly you know because i i was my fault you know so i found it really funny so i knew just to shut up and take a moment and then then of course that is it's a really really funny thing that happened that you can both share in even though it was pretty charged at the time uh it doesn't take long if you you know when you understand what's just happened it's pretty easy to unpack and kind of laugh about and especially when you find out the spider was a lot smaller than than i thought it was so there is this way you know because you were saying you know, like you get worked up and you need to take this time out and i think when you understand how the emotions work and how this stuff's happening to us then it can be kind of amusing like it helps to just kind of laugh about it and that is something i learned living with uh with the tibetans actually they just find this stuff funny you know and 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 just let it go very very easily they don't have these sort of hang-ups for the most part that we do so that can be and even if it's only one of you even if for example that happened and the other person doesn't understand you know the emotion stuff it's easy enough to apologize and placate them you know because you understand what's going on for the other person no worries uh, and then take a step away and have a laugh about it outside because it's really helpful to know yeah when i'm emotional i'm overestimating what's happening so that, that's really helpful information and if you've done a bit of attention training you'll actually like at first you'll know that afterwards you think oh i just i over you know, i really overreacted but as you get better at it you think oh i'm overreacting like right now you get even better at it it's like oh, i'm about to overreact this is the sort of trajectory, I guess, to the point that you can, you know, most times as you're about to sort of overreact, you can relax and rein it in and then go ahead and say something uh, constructive. And you know, my joke is often, you know, you're saying sometimes you, you know, if you like throwing something at somebody, I often say you're better off catching yourself in the sort of wind up than the follow through, you know. If you catch yourself about to throw something, this is success. You know, if you catch yourself in the follow through, maybe not so much. The, the point is, it's, there is some point in that whole emotional interaction with others that you'll notice what's happening and hopefully can sort of bring it back. In the beginning, it will be after the event. And as you improve over time, and this takes training, you'll notice earlier and earlier and earlier that you're emotional, which is great. Then if you actually understand, if you have what contingency plans, what shall I do if this is happening, then you're in a much better place to actually pull that off and use that emotion as a signpost that actually creates something constructive. Whereas if you had just run through it automatically, it may well have ended up, uh, you know, destructive. Yes. And for people to think about where are you as far as your skill to catch yourself? Are you at that point where, whoop, just flipped it, just lost it. Okay. I noticed that next time. Or is it in the moment where you sort of catch yourself mid-flight and think, whoa, let, let's rein it back? Or can you get that really high-level skill of, I am about to, so what can I do? And I think there's an invitation to all of us 
for compassion, that we're not going to get this right all the time. There are going to be times where we're captured by our emotions and we do flip our lids in whatever way that looks like. If we're a fight, freeze. If I cross the road with a dog or say something that I didn't want to say and then thinking about potentially a repair or what can I learn and try again next time. Yeah, absolutely. The whole thing is a percentage game. And I often say to clients of mine, well, if you have this problematic reaction that you do 90% of the time and 10% of the time you actually kind of get it right and then we do a bit of work and you do the training and a week from now you get it right 20% of the time and wrong 80% of the time, that is a 100% improvement. You know, so like the, you have to sort of think about it over overall like in this way. One of the things we're trying to work on first and foremost you know, there are stages that I would work with people through, but the first one is to try, try to develop what I call like a lucidity in terms of the emotions. So most emotions happen, they're non-lucid. We don't know they're happening to us. We don't even realize what we're saying or doing as it happens. Whereas if you can bring a sense of lucidity to that so that you're aware of what's happening, you can go a long way with that. The, the lucidity, then you can start to reinterpret. And uh, one of the ways that you can reinterpret things if you if you if you got all this together, then the next step is to add a sense of of kindness and compassion. And these are really like everything. It comes back to what you're paying attention to. And so you know, an example would be if you have a um, you know, if you have a a person who's angry a lot of the time. Most people will agree because I've done this all over the country for like ten years. If you ask people and say, well, can we agree that a an angry a person in the grip of an anger episode is not enjoying themselves? They say, yeah, it's, it's you know negative affect. We say it's unpleasant. That's not what we focus on, though. When a person's being angry in front of us, we focus on how it affects me because that's how emotions work. They rearrange the world to be about me, right? And so that's what I'm going to do next. But if I, all it takes for me is a switch of attention. If now I switch and think, oh, uh, this is a person in distress, and is there anything I could do to alleviate the distress? Now we're talking about a compassionate response to a person who's you know, in the grip of an anger episode. And you know, the compassionate response may be and often is to just not say anything at all, which our culture doesn't value not doing something, even though not doing things is often so hard, we don't value it. So it's kind of hard to convince people of this. If you have a person who's angry a lot of the time, then they meet angry people everywhere. And this is how your relationships work. You're, an angry person is actually an anger trigger for most people, sometimes fear, but mostly anger. So if they suddenly meet one person who, who just doesn't respond, like that's really radical for them. Yeah, because everyone else is doing this, you're acting in this way. So it's really, really radical for that person. And so the, again, this the not doing is to not respond might be one of the most compassionate things you can do. And it, again, how do you do that? Well, you need to be in control of your attention and decide where you place it. You know, William James in 1890 said something like, you know, for the moment, what we attend to is reality. The idea that what you're attending to is basically your reality. And if you don't attend to something, it doesn't exist for you. So if I have an angry person and I don't attend to their distress, their distress is, is completely unavailable to me. And if their distress is unavailable to me, compassion towards them is now unavailable to me. So there is this, you know, this is why I was saying in the beginning, it always just collapses back into your attention and what you're doing with it. And, you know, getting skillful in placing it in places, putting it in places where it's going to bring about reactions that are, that are constructive or at the very least, don't are, are neutral. For a lot of people, actually, for a lot of people I work with in the beginning, going from destructive to neutral is life changing. You know, and then you settle into that for a while, and they say, well, you know, you can actually make them. You can. You don't have to stop here. Yeah, that idea of becoming lucid, and then what you do with your attention and relationships—it's all tied into this attention and emotional literacy. What I'm starting to think about is the systems in which we all function. So in school systems, in classrooms, in home systems, family of origin systems, once you have more than one relationship and once you start to have a whole culture and a system. So can you tell us how that impacts how we think, feel and behave? This, it's so hard to try to, to just really pare this down because it's a whole topic in and of itself. I think a lot of, if you're thinking about in terms of, say, self-care, for example, it's not really ever done in terms of the systems in place. It's in terms of what's happening to you right now. Your, like your self-care might be 
you know, self-care is getting a massage or going to the movies and this kind of stuff, which, you know, kind of helps, I guess. But it doesn't address sort of systemic issues. And so one of the advantages of, say, having a, a culture of people who are, start, who are being surrounding yourself with people who are getting interested in this and thinking about it in this way is that it, it normalizes it. The idea that, oh, my emotions sometimes control my behavior and that's a problem, then you're with other people who, and so when other people kind of play up, if you like, it's not a big deal. You go, oh, no worries. That's how emotions work. You know, you, apologies are easy to deal with. You know, uh, it's, it's probably only equal to something stupid I did last week. So the, that can be really helpful. And in fact, one of my favorite things to do in the past, uh, pre-COVID, I could work with whole organizations and give them whole vocabularies and, and mechanics of how emotions work. And so then, yeah, it's really helpful to be all on the same page with that. That's, yeah, that idea of having, say, a community or a bunch of people who are thinking about it the same way is really helpful because otherwise you're just putting out fires all the time. The, so I hope I'm answering your question sort of properly, but that, that idea that you can put other people on board with the same understanding of what's happening for you is, is incredibly powerful. Like really, that the programs that I run online, I make sure that we meet every week, at least by Zoom, uh, so that people see on the screen, look, there's a dozen other people out there doing this too, like right here and now. Uh, because when you shut this off and go back out there, they're not the people you're going to meet. These are people who have really decided, you know what, I'm going to try to get, I want to get emotions working for me. I, I'm willing to put in 15, 20 minutes a day to get that happening. I'm willing to understand how it works. And then, you know, you go outside and start talking to people about emotions as signposts and so on, and you just get dead air. So it's really important to have that, that, other, that other group of people who are with you. And this is true all over the place. It, it's if you're working with kind of trying to change policy in terms of social media or education or anything, it's the same thing. When, if you're making these, these are slightly bigger picture issues. You know, we're not just trying to help you feel better right here and now, we're trying to change your mental health. And that, that means a system, you need to put systems in place. And as soon as you start talking about systems instead of just sort of isolated incidents, it gets a bit lonely because everyone's running around. Of course, we're mostly trying to put out fires and it can be really helpful to find the other people who are also working on a more systemic way of thinking about something or, or making changes. You know, I hope that sort of makes sense. Makes complete sense. And I know that the educators that I work with, they get so much energy from connecting with other educators and saying, oh, I'm not the only one. Yeah. And I'm trying this. I'm playing with this. I know each of my coaching sessions, people come and they're excited to have someone to talk to that is on the same page and to say, I tried this. This didn't quite work. This is working. And I'm seeing my progress and I'm seeing people are responding to me differently. And it's so exciting. So I think you raise a really good point to have spaces in our lives. That we can have these conversations knowing that it's not the norm. The majority of people don't have this language, have this understanding, have this awareness, and that that's okay. Reach out to people who can support you on your journey. Absolutely. We can go through, if you look at it, the education system right through, education and healthcare are the two sectors I mostly sort of deal with. We know that children in primary school are struggling with anxiety and this sort of stuff. We know it gets a bit worse in high school. Uh, we know that in, in tertiary institutions it gets even higher. So the, if you think about a person who's maybe becoming a teacher uh, or become paramedic, you know, these are high stress jobs and they get, they can do 12 years of school and three or four years of university and no one's talked to them about emotions yet. Yeah. I mean, it was just mind boggling. And so then we throw them into high stress situations and we wonder what's wrong with them when they burn out. And you know, the answer is nothing. So that, that would be good if some of that if that education about, hey, here's how emotions work and here's what you can do about it really gently started um, way early on. It should be starting in preschool. Actually, there's no reason it couldn't. But then what you would have is you'd have a, a cohort of people moving through this whole system who kind of don't get over, don't overreact. Or if they do, they understand it and it's no big deal. And they understand that things get tense and they can deal with that and so on as they go through their schooling system uh, to the point we throw them out into these high pressure jobs. And they you know, they've got this whole sort of background of, you know, experience of how emotions work and understanding it and seeing it in real time. And that actually that's going to rub off on the people they encounter, both colleagues and 
you know, clients or students or whoever in front of them. So yeah, that we there's, we could do it. You know, we could actually this community we could start by educating young young children, you know, really simply about how their emotions work. And you know, because my wife's an early childhood teacher, so you know, I've seen the results with say three year olds saying, "I just lost control." You know, totally getting it. I just lost. I mean, kids are so smart. If you can sort of make that trajectory right from the get-go, then you're going to have children whose social emotional learning is going to be streets above, which we know only feeds into their outcomes in the future. So yeah, you could. The community is important, and it's important for us um, in the situation we're in. But we could be creating um, whole cohorts of communities who are moving through the system like this if we would prioritize the. The social emotional stuff right at the beginning uh, we could have very different outcomes and i've seen it in men and other people i'm sure have traveled through places like india and, and tibet and so on where you can see the kids uh they do they've grown up in a different it has its own drawbacks i'm not trying to they have their own issues but but certainly they don't come out they don't come through with these high levels of mental health issues that you see in the west where you've got these really heavy kind of academic pressures from an early age. What really excites me about the future is getting to a place where we teach the skills of well-being just like we teach numeracy and literacy. And I've seen it time and time again, just how young people can take this on. And for a lot of young people, they can take it on much quicker yeah. than us as adults. Yeah. You know, our four-year-old, he can tell me, I've just flipped my lid. I've just lost it. Or for whatever reason, he's run to his bed and I go and have a chat to him. And he said, I lost control of my body. I just needed to get back in my body. I thought, wow, imagine if we had this language and it's not so much I'm useless. I can't believe I did that. It's more, this is what happens. I'm human and let's go again. And that's what really excites me. And that's what drives me to share conversations like this is because we're all in this system in the globe, like we're in a global community and systems are made up of individuals. And I believe if individuals do their bit, by definition, we're going to change the system one by one. I know that there are so many systemic changes that need to be made. However, I'm not in a position to make those. But what I can do is support people to support themselves. And then I feel that once you've got a bit more awareness, you've got a bit more emotional literacy, then you can lean in to tougher conversations because we're not feeling so captured and running away all the time. And you can deal with the pushback. Like if I, this is going to be really threatening to people. So I say this and I get the threatening and that's this joke I make is you just step aside and you let all the vitriol go by and then you can probably have a conversation. But if you don't have the emotional literacy or the training, the vitriol hits you really hard and then you double down and come back, you know, extra hard. Yeah, it's just that ability to step aside and not take things personally can be huge. And yeah, you could start learning that and you can start learning that at a very, very young age, even before school. Lori, I have learned so much from this conversation. It gets me so excited to have these conversations because I think about the long-term future of what's possible when we understand our humanness yeah. more and bring our human element to classrooms, staff rooms and homes. And so I'd love to wrap up this conversation with an invitation to finish four sentences. Yep. I am inspired by... People trying to make systems changes. It's a bit nerdy. I'm inspired by people who are turning their attention to difficult, to difficult areas, personally or socially, and making those changes. And that, for me, that's, I get one client, you know, I get people who come to me and they say, look, I'm really stressed out. This is happening. Um, I want to know what my part of it is. You know, what am I doing? I, I, like, that really inspires me right through to, you know, people like Desmond Tutu and these sorts of people who, you know, or Tristan Harris, if you're familiar with his work in the Centre for Humane Technology, like people who are looking at the system and trying to make these, these big changes and keep it up. That's, that really inspires me. When life feels hard? I make sure that I'm not mistaking my short-term goals for my long ones. As I mentioned earlier, that's the first thing I do for sure. An underrated skill is? Well, I, attention, I have to say attention yeah and i am looking forward to i'm looking forward to what happens with this next generation of who are sort of coming out of school or have just been through the first couple of years of university i'm really looking forward to finding out 
they're, they have a different set of ethics in terms of the corporations they deal with, in terms of the environment and politics. I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do because I'm quite hopeful that they're going to make a better go at it than we did. Me too. Particularly this week, uh, watching the address of Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame. I'm like 26. Yeah. Being able to stand there with such conviction to articulate in a way to be able to regulate your emotions in that stage. It gets me so excited about the future of Australia and what our leaders will look like in the future. Thank you so much, Corey, for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing. My pleasure. And can I just say, I wish I had included those two uh, in my examples of people who inspire me, because that was really something else. The Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins, it was amazing. Wasn't it amazing? Yeah. Anyone who hasn't watched the full speech, I'll put a link in the show notes for this episode, because I think it's worth just watching what is possible when people are really aligned, really focused. It's just breathtaking. Yeah, yeah. And again, long-term goals. It's not short-term revenge. It's nothing like that. It's the long-term systemic change. And they kept their eye on the ball. It was, yeah, yeah, it was something else. Thanks, Corey. No worries. Thank you. I am sure this conversation has given you plenty to think about. As humans, we have a range of intense emotions. And if we are unaware that it's happening and we're not paying attention, it can capture our thinking, feeling and behaving and move us away from the people that we want to become. To learn more about Corey's incredible work in the world and the Cultivating Emotional Balance course, visit his website, coreyjackson.com.au. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to stop and take a moment to think about the two following questions. From this conversation, what is one thing you want to remember? What is your pearl? And number two, what is one action you can take in the next 24 hours to support your well-being? Subscribe to the Thought of the Week newsletter to find out what I'm working on and everything that I'm loving, what I'm reading, what I'm listening to, and what I'm watching. To support the show, please rate and review on iTunes and Spotify and share with your family, friends, and colleagues. Thank you for listening to another episode of the School of Wellbeing, and I look forward to sharing more wellbeing education with you next week. Mm-hmm.